Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome to this webinar entitled Implementing Child Rights Online, New Cross-National Evidence to Guide Policy. My name is Sonia Livingstone and I'm a professor at the Department of Media and Communications, which is co-hosting this event in conjunction with UNICEF Office of Research in Ashanti. And together we partner on the Global Kids Online Research Network, which has spent the past seven years developing new cross-national evidence to guide policymaking and practice for child online protection, provision and participation. Taken together, ways of developing the evidence base to implement children's rights in a digital world. This webinar is being recorded uh, and also streamed live on YouTube uh, and we'll post the recording later on the Global Kids Online website. So please feel free to tweet or post on social media and also as we talk uh, do put your questions in the Q&A and we'll come to you in a bit. So today we'll be showcasing evidence from 47 countries around the globe to explore children's internet-related risks and opportunities framed in relation to children's rights. And with children's experiences of online um, risk of harm often in the headlines and a new sense of urgency about internet governance and children's rights. Global Kids Online has been working to ensure that national and international decision making is grounded in comparative and rigorous research. So the plan for today's webinar is that I'll first say a few words on how the research um, can work to make children's digital lives visible and why this matters. We're then going to come to a panel and we have several Global Kids Online partners with us. They'll compare key findings and emerging issues in selected countries in South Asia, Africa and Latin America. And we'll discuss some priority issues for the international research and policy agenda on children's digital lives. Then we'll hear from our UNICEF colleagues who've been advancing the research as part of the Disrupting Harm project jointly with Interpol and ECPAT International, and they will present their latest uh, findings, uh, particularly focusing on some of the uh, potential harms, the risks of harm uh, that can come to children. And um, finally, um, we, my, we will open up for a Q&A um, on what further evidence and impact uh, is needed, along with any questions that you may have for the panelists. So first, I'm just going to show you a couple of slides just to give you a sense of how the Global Kids Online website looks um, and, and a sense of what it is. So it's at globalkidsonline.net. Essentially, uh, you can see here the uh, participating countries and our core focus, which is a combination of tools for researchers and research results. So Global Kids Online has um, been developed to expand the evidence base and ensure um, informed uh, policy and practice. Uh, you can see that children's rights in the digital age is our kind of um, uh, mission statement at the top. And we've been working really to uh, create an international network of researchers, experts, and to build uh, capacity for research uh, and to build the evidence base, sometimes in countries where there has not been so much uh, 
research before, uh, and also to ensure that the research that is being generated uh, coming from many different countries and parts of the world is conducted on, on a basis which is uh, comparable. So producing those tools for researchers, the multi-method toolkit has been a very important part of, of, of Global Kids Online, uh, as well as, of course, making the results available, comparing the results. And you can see that also in our blog. So on the website, you'll find our survey instrument, our impact toolkit, national and comparative results, information about the participating countries. Uh, and I'll just give you a quick indication of some of the reports and the reports, if you like, also give you a little account of our story. Uh, so we began um, with the global agenda for children's rights in the digital age um, on the top left, uh, even before Global Kids Online was officially launched, with an effort to say how policymakers and practitioners and child rights organisations around the world felt the lack of uh, research evidence and, and called for a global agenda for, for researching children's rights. Um, our paper one in three uh, calls attention to one of the themes of this webinar, which is about making uh, children visible in the processes of, of internet governance. Uh, and that, that very idea that children are one in three, uh, it works two ways. They are one in three people uh, in the world. Uh, they are also one in three internet users. Uh, and that makes them a very significant portion of internet users, but uh, the concern we express in that paper is that uh, internet governance and indeed provision and rollout of digital resources uh, often works with a kind of an ideal user who is an adult. So we really want to make children and their needs and their rights visible. The Global Kids Online comparative report uh, in the centre on the top row there is 11 country report where we took the findings that have been coming in from countries in different parts of the world and undertook the comparison to, to really understand in what ways are the risks and opportunities that children encounter online uh, similar, different, where are the differences, can we quantify some of those differences um, and so forth. Um, we have conducted, as you can see, also a rapid evidence review of the most recent research. We conducted an assessment of the impact of our own work, uh, which I'm going to show you um, just now. And then I just wanted to say ways in which some of the research has been taken up um, on the bottom left by the ITU in its global connectivity report. Um, very importantly, um, by the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child uh, in drafting General Comment 25 on how states should attend to children's rights and implement children's rights, specifically in relation to the digital world. There are actually a, a range of reports uh, that UNICEF has published, and most recently the ITU, the uh, International Telecommunication Union, has uh, revisited its child online protection tools and guidance for stakeholders informed by research. So, as I said, one of the uh, studies was to try to understand how does um, research get taken up? It's actually always something of a, a puzzle for researchers to work out how to kind of trace that pathway to impact uh, that can ensure that the evidence um, is used in ways that are practical and beneficial 
by policymakers around the world. And what our impact study revealed is, and this is just a selection of some of the ways in which Global Kids Online findings have been used, but we are very proud of these and the ways that it's being used um, still. Um, the impact team went and visited and called the policymakers to try to kind of understand where is research being cited, where is it proving useful. Um, I won't read out the details on this slide, um, but what I would observe is how the research is being used both to um, promote children's access, their meaningful access to digital resources in some parts of the world, uh, how uh, the research is sometimes used in um, educational um, enterprises and educational um, programming uh, to support digital literacy education, to support uh, children's beneficial use of digital resources to promote their learning um, and development, and at other times, and perhaps more often the research is used with an eye to promoting children's protection online uh, and thinking about ways in which they can be uh, safe online. So those were just some of our outputs and impacts so far. I will um, now stop sharing um, because I just wanted to give you a sense of the nature of the enterprise. But Global Kids Online is a moving feast in a way. Um, new countries uh, come online um, periodically. I think often at the point at which they uh, want to understand better and gain the research evidence for how children are um, at risk or gaining new opportunities online. Some countries represented here have been rolling out the survey annually. So we begin to get a longitudinal story as well as a, a widening um, cross-sectional story about how children, what opportunities and risks they gain online. And um, there is more and more impact work being done as well as the findings get taken up by different practitioners and, and stakeholders. So that's what we want to, I wanted to give you the, how we got here to today. And now I'm going to, in fact, uh, hand over to my colleague, Dr. Maria Stoliver, who's going to introduce a panel with some of the newest findings and insights from the research. And as we said before, do please put questions and comments in the Q&A as you go, and we will uh, come to those soon. But let me hand over now to Maria to chair today's panel. So Maria Stoliver uh, is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Media and Communications, working with me at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and her expertise is at the intersection of children's rights and digital technology, with a particular focus on the opportunities and risks of digital media use in the everyday lives of children and young people. Maria. Thank you very much, Sonia, for this uh, great introduction to Global Kids Online. Um, I think we're going to bring to life some of the, the reports that you were talking uh, about in our discussion. So let me introduce um, our speakers today. Uh, Alexander Barbosa is our first speaker. He is uh, head of the Regional Center for Studies on the Development of Information Society uh, in Brazil. And he's in charge of several nationwide ICT surveys um, and research projects on the socioeconomic implications of ICTs. And this includes research on ICT in education uh, and online risks and opportunities for children, the Kids Online Survey. And between uh, 2012 and 2017, he was the chair of the expert group on the ICT household indicators from the International Communication, uh, Telecommunications Union. 
Uh, our second speaker is Patrick Burton. He is a research consultant and director of the Center uh, for Justice and Crime Prevention in South Africa. He has worked on different aspects of child online safety and children's rights in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East uh, and North Africa region, as well as Southeast Asia. Uh, he recently completed a Global Kids Online study with Save the Children Zambia uh, and is currently working with UNICEF in offices in Tunisia, Cambodia, Albania uni and uh, UNICEF headquarters. Uh, and uh, the last speaker for, for the panel uh, is Manisha Patak-Shalat. She is a professor of communication, digital platforms and strategies and the chairperson of the Center for Development, Management and Communication in the MICA in the Hemabad. And she uh, has taught and worked as a media consultant and trainer uh, and researcher in India, Thailand and the US. And her research interests focus on young people's media cultures, use of new media, civic engagement, uh, transcultural citizenship and media literacy and gender. So thank you very much for uh, agreeing to take part uh, in this panel. Uh, Alexandre, if I may start uh, with you, you have been uh, sort of the longest standing uh, researcher, uh, even starting uh, to do the, the, the research that you're currently doing uh, before the official kickoff um, of Global Kids Online. And you've been doing this panel surveys that Sonia spoke about um, annually. So have a really good overview of how things have um, have changed over the years. So uh, in relation to your most current work, uh, what do you think is the surprising and the new things that are coming up from your findings? Thank you very much, Maria and Sonia. Uh, good morning, uh, good afternoon, and good evening, uh, dear colleagues. It is for me a real <laughs> pleasure to join all of you in this panel. And before just uh, addressing the question that Maria has just made, I would like to to say that we have started collecting data using the EU Kids Online Framework into 2012. And since then, we have been publishing our findings on an annual basis. And now we have just completed 10 years of an annually uh, survey. So this is our anniversary. <laughs> so I'm very glad to be here to discuss this. And uh, Sonia, I just remember when we started uh, the household survey with individuals and the use of internet in back in 2005, very soon we realized that the young population, they are hard users of internet and that we needed to explore and research the implications of this usage. The, it was when I met you in, uh, in Geneva in 2009, and then we discussed it and uh, I've been in London in the conference at LSE, and we started this uh, whole uh, big uh, endeavor in 2012. But let me say also that uh, today is a special day for us as well, because we are now here in Brazil with um, four countries that are collecting data already in Latin America. So we started with this idea of uh, creating a Latin America Kids Online Network back in 2016, I guess, or 15, 16. Um, and then Chile uh, started uh, collecting data, then Uruguay, uh, then Costa Rica, Dominican Republic. And today we have uh, Argentina with a new wave uh, conducted by UNICEF and also Peru and Colombia are planning. Well, this is just to say that uh, I'm very happy with this uh, uh, gathering. Some relevant findings, uh, Maria, from our latest uh, publication that was launched uh, the day before yesterday, on Monday, 
The survey revealed an increase in the proportion of children that are internet users in the country that today is 93% in Brazil. If you go back to 2019, it was 89%, vast majority. However, we need to bear in mind that this high uh, proportion implies in equality on connectivity issues. You still see a lot of inequalities on the type of connection, Mm -hmm. um, on the device they use to access the internet. Uh, We have, for instance, 53% of uh, participating children said they had access to the internet exclusively via mobile phones. This has several implications, and this happens with more disadvantaged group um, of uh, children, usually low-income households, uh, rural areas, remote areas. So this is a big issue in terms of uh, skills and use, and it will definitely go under protection and risks because and mediation as well. Um, other relevant finding, when you look at the activities, we see that activities uh, that increased the most during the pandemics were the use of social media networks and online games. This was already happening before, but now it was a big uh, increase in these two particular uh, activities. And last but not least, This year, we start to uh, introduce indicators from the uh, Global Kids Online that we didn't have uh, before uh, on mental health. And I just would like to say that uh, I was very amazed with the uh, figure of 32% of children reporting that they are seeking online help for dealing with negative experience or even sharing their emotions when they felt sad, for instance. The proportions were higher among children aged 15 to 17 years old uh, that uh, went up to 46%. So those are maybe uh, key findings in this last edition. And I will stop here because uh, we have to hear from uh, our colleagues and then I come back, Maria. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alexander. Um, I think some of the points that you raised here will uh, speak to the other country context. Patrick, if I can address the same question to you uh, on a sentimental note, you've been with Global Kids Online since the, the beginning uh, with you know one of the pilot countries, uh, South Africa, but since then you've worked on other contexts. So uh, do any of the discussions of the findings that Alessandro was speaking about speak to, to your context and what's the most interesting uh, for you? Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think unlike the work that Alessandro has been doing, um, we don't have the privilege of having as much data simply because in most countries where I've worked, certainly, um, you know, in the African context, we've only conducted one and we're still working towards getting that regularity of sweep so we can start seeing changes in the data. But I think much of what we've seen coming out of Brazil is reflected in South Africa in terms of the growing numbers of children that are connected. You know, one thing that we always find, and I think back to the recent Zambia Kids Online study, and but even Zimbabwe, where we didn't do the household survey, but we used the Global Kids Online qualitative tool to collect some qualitative data there. And adults tell us from the outset that you don't need to speak to children outside of the cities because they're not going to be online. And yet they are. And you go out and children are telling us about the knowledge and the experiences they have. And sure, that knowledge is at a certain level, but they are online. 
which totally counters what the adults, you know, kind of perceive the situation to be. Um, so I think a couple of things is, are the access. I mean, in Zambia, we saw around 75% of children can get online when they want to with relative ease. And so still lower than Brazil, but a lot higher than what's expected. Things like skills, rather using the internet to learn new skills. I mean, the best example, and we actually found the same when we did the when we did quality work here in, in the Southeast Asia, was you know, children learn hearing about a VPN and using YouTube to start using and learn how to use a VPN. But the other thing that I think is particularly relevant, and it's something we need to balance that I think Global Kids Online does so well in terms of making sure it adopts a child rights framework, is the age at which children are increasingly, in these contexts, being exposed to risks. Um, and it's not necessarily always the risks, again, that adults might perceive or be concerned about, the, which is primarily sexual content. Mm-hmm. Um but in, in Zambia, we found around 10% of children had actively sought out information on how to take their own life. And when I say 10%, that's 10% of 9 to 12-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So very, very young age. And the same looking for information around drugs. And so we're seeing this, this kind of actively seeking out content online that is very risky for them, that is different to the kind of pure, you know, focus on on sexual risks that we tend to be concerned about as adults and policymakers. And um, so I think these are really, you know, interesting findings that we didn't see coming out of the South African Kids Online study when we piloted in 2016. And I think it just shows how the shift has occurred over these few years in different contexts. Thank you, Patrick. That's very interesting. And the comment uh, about the children's views and voices, I think this is the sort of a really the, the baseline of Global Kids Online trying to speak to children about their experiences because parents sometimes either don't know or have very different views. And I think that also speaks to some of the, the research that Manisha did in India. You had similar experiences of the kind of things that children wanted to learn might not be necessarily the kind of the traditional skills that we think of them. So uh, Manisha, being representing one of the the newest countries uh, to add to the Global Kids Online Network, uh, what are for you the most interesting findings coming from your research? Thank you, Maria. I think the very first thing we observed, and our data was limited to Gujarat, then uh, also there were some disruptions because of the pandemic. But something interesting because of the pandemic was that. So many children who otherwise would not have got a chance to be online got to be online. Maybe on borrowed devices, maybe on a shared device, but they got an opportunity to be online. And, uh, you know, it was primarily for school. But you know that once, you know, given an opportunity, a lot of other things are explored and that did happen. So that is uh, one very interesting finding. We also found that family income matters, but um, both for access as well as for learning skills and for support systems, but it mattered much more for girls than Mm -hmm. for boys. And we also found that gender mattered. And this is like, it mattered much more for low-income families than with high or upper middle-income families. And one very specific observation we had was with respect to the girls from low-income families, 
and uh, families that tend to be very conservative, that cell phone acquired a very different position when it came to daughters, you know. And it's more a cultural and social issue than infrastructural one. So that is where I would really want to now focus my uh, future research. The other interesting thing was that parents' role, you know, really emerged as a strong influencer, both as an enabler as well as as restrictor. Mm -hmm. So when we compare this to other countries, we found that, you know, in India, a lot of children, and especially the younger ones, still see parents as their allies in digital exploration. So you ask them that, okay, what would you do in this kind of situation if you found a harmful content, you are confused, anything? And their first response was that I would consult my parents, you know. So that is still very much there. And then this question emerges that how media literate or digital literate are the parents? Mm -hmm. Because they are still, you know, chief influences when it comes to younger children. And because of this, and uh, so parents also have a lot of restrictions for younger children about how much time they can use on cell phone. You know, for some kids, it was only half an hour a day. And for what activities? So two things happened because of this. They clearly, of course, were exposed to less harm, but also they got less opportunities to freely hang out and explore and try other creative things. And because of this, and also because of, you know, uh, expensive software, which is not easily available and all that, a large number of children remain more of consumers then, you know, active participants or like expressing, you know, very actively on digital platforms. So that is something I think we need to explore in detail more. And uh, the, another thing about parents was that while many parents claim that, you know, their style was more enabling and that they were engaging in participatory and dialogic communication with children over the Internet, the children still talked about monitoring and restrictions and other things. So I think definitely uh, we need to do more work with parents. That's whatever finding show. Uh, and the last thing I would just want to make this point that we also found and, you know, other scholars have been studying this about the strong leaning towards entertainment, gaming, leisure. And parents and teachers expressing this very serious concern about too much of that. So now the question, it's an interesting debate that like, how much is too much? Is it really harmful? Should school intervene? Because we found that most of the schools were still protectionist in the way they dealt with internet and children. So these are some of the interesting questions that also emerged. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you, Manisha. That's very interesting. Um, and it also speaks to some of the things that we've addressed in the comparative reports that actually uh, gaming sometimes improves the skills and opportunities that children, so they're, in some cases, they're doing better 
uh, if they're more engaged in, in gaming. So that speaks also to the wider picture of quite surprising findings across the countries and maybe uh, the need for comparing across uh, the different countries. So that brings me to to the question of uh, what is it that policymakers and practitioners have found uh, valuable and have acted on in your research? Because in many of the global kids online countries, these were the first surveys that actually speak to children's digital engagement that you're learning from the kids in these contexts. What is it that they, they're doing uh, that they find uh, useful and harmful? So Alexandre, is there anything that in, in your context has been particularly useful for policymakers or practitioners? Yeah, definitely, Maria. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, the beauty of having a very strong uh, framework and comparable data is that you can really support uh, the debate, right, based on evidence. I, I, I would like to mention that we published uh, in Berlin uh, this comparative report with the four countries and just uh, three uh, very specific points that I would like to highlight from the countries in the region um, in terms of access inequalities, gender issues, and also parental mediation. When, when you look at uh, uh, inequalities in access, Brazil and Chile, we have the prevalence of smartphone usage uh, instead of having more broad type of devices. And this has, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, implications for uh, skills development. In terms of gender, um, if you take the results from, again, Brazil and Chile, uh, we see uh, gender differences uh, very significant among risks that we measured being girls uh, more vi victimized um, online uh, rather than boys in multiple ways. I'm not going to go into the details. For instance, uh, while males and younger children were more victimized uh, than uh, girls via traditional or offline bullying, uh, this is a very important issue. So we can compare data. And in, in the last point in terms of regional report and comparable data, we see a strong association between type of parental mediations and risks. This is a particular the results from Costa Rica and Uruguay. Children are not, uh, that are not uh, native and require mediation and support from parents, teachers and other peers uh, was very clear in these two particular countries. So going to this, um, how or what did policymakers find useful in case of, I would like to give some uh, examples of Brazil, for instance, in terms of public policy debate, we have uh, launched uh, again before the pandemics, the PIAC policy, which is um, innovation and connected school, something like that. Uh, so all the data to discuss uh, building capacity among teachers and safety use of uh, internet by students were based on the uh, findings from our research. So this was really very important. And then we have two other uh, strategies from the Brazilian government. One is the Brazilian strategy on digital transformation. And the other one is the national strategy on artificial intelligence that was approved two years ago. Both of them are not very deep uh, recommendations on child online protection, but they do have uh, some recommendations, particularly particularly on personal data protection. So uh, this was based on the findings of the Kids Online Survey in Brazil, which makes us very happy that uh, the public debate, uh, the policy debate in Brazil is being based on in 
in a certain way on evidence, but we can also see the private sector using our uh, data. So major social media uh, websites and digital platforms uh, were presented cyberbullying and discrimination data from the Kids Online Brazil survey as an input for their content policies. So today, when you go to these uh, content policies from this digital platform, you will find data from the survey. Um, now I would like to mention that, uh, again, international organizations here in the region, such as UNICEF and uh, UNESCO, they also made extensive use of Kids Online for advocacy programs. So this is a very important. Um, just to give an example of um, Chile, uh, the Minister of Education, um, developed the school guidelines related to digital citizenship and use of cell phones. Again, based on the Chilean Kids Online Survey, Uruguay, uh, we have also a discussion on a conglomerate of public agencies jointly developed a digital citizenship program targeting studs, stu students that uh, relied on evidence by the Kids Online finding and last but, last but not least, Costa Rica. Also, the Minister of Science and Technology has developed an educational material about digital risks based on the finding of Kids Online uh, Costa Rica. And just to finish, I would like to highlight the role of uh, UN ECLAC here in the region uh, and UNESCO also in the region. Uh, UN ECLAC, they have made this um, comparative report that I showed to you this uh, is very important, uh, and there is still a lack of recommendation related to children's in digital uh, agendas in the countries, but it is uh, the beginning of this debate. And when you go to UNESCO, the Internet Universality uh, Indicators, the ROM frameworks, uh, we have in the region uh, three country reports that are addressing at the X dimension, which is cross-cutting variables or dimension, we have the gender and the kids online protection. So in the reports from Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay, we do have uh, evidence from the kids online surveys being used to discuss this issue of internet usage in those countries. So mm -hmm. I stop here. Thank you again. Thank you, Alexander. Uh, you listed so many, uh, you know, things that you've managed to achieve that you make it sound easy. But we know that, uh, you know, achieving impact is not easy, and it's the product of a lot of work and uh, good networking that you've done. Which I think Patrick has also done. I remember some success stories um, about building capacity similar to what Alexander was saying. But yeah, what what do you think in your area are the the success stories? Yeah, well, I, it it is. Similar. And, you know, again, the most recent work on Zambia Kids Online, we only launched the study earlier this year, so it's very early to talk about policy impact. Um, but in terms of, um, I think you also made the point that in so many of these countries, it's the first data that exists. And so policymakers and legislators are desperate for data like this on which they can start build, build, building. Um, and if I just take the example of Zambia, while it's too early to see a translation to policy change, what it has resulted in is um, quite quite robust dialogue between, for example, the Ministry of Education, ICT, as to what can be done, um, and the roles of these different ministries in addressing this issue, for example, in schools and how partnerships can be formed. Um, it's, you know, we developed specific policy briefs for educators, for parents, 
And certainly the reception from the Ministry of Education has been absolutely phenomenal because it's the first real information that exists. Um, and the data that we've collected, we can feed into those processes. It's just, it's, you know, it's it's so valuable. If I think, uh, again, I referenced um, the work in Zimbabwe where we, we, we used the GKO qualitative guide, focus group guide. And there... Um, the data that emerged from that was used to inform an entire to inform the national child online protection policy, as well as developing training for for social workers, frontline practitioners, um, and a range of other products that the ministries now take that the different ministries are taking on board. So certainly, that values there, um, and I think it's early days um, in terms of sort of seeing how we keep feeding this research into those processes as well, because it is, you know, it. I, I saw there was one of the questions coming in around potential impact. Now we need to start seeing how that policy change happens and the impact of that policy change over time. We know this doesn't happen quickly. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick. That, that's a great point to uh, end your comment on and something that I, I can ask Manisha because yours is sort of the youngest study. I know it's been rece uh, received very well uh, and there's interest in doing additional um, areas and regions in India. Uh, but have you already managed to have some uh, success stories or responses from policymakers? No, I'm afraid, Maria, we haven't yet started any systematic advocacy policy efforts. But we have identified at least some areas where we would like to work and, you know, prepare policy briefs. So I can say that three important areas uh, have emerged. One is that there are many kids who have recommended having more content in Indian languages and that that would really enhance their experience on the Internet, especially the participation and the expression side of it. The other is that most of the children in the study had experienced some form of risk, you know, either it was unsolicited request, privacy issues, uh, content risk, a lot of virus infected content, also disinformation, harmful messages, over-sexualized images, all of that somewhere or the other, you know, children have experienced. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the concern of the parents are not completely misplaced. But the thing is that uh, I think the governments, and I don't say they're not doing anything, but we are not forcing the platforms to do enough about this. And we give... We put a lot of burden on the parents and children themselves. So we would recommend policymakers to do more about this. And the use of phones is actually, and this is very concerning, it is actually growing, you know, as a weapon for sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. So this has to be addressed when we have cyber crime policy. But, you know, more importantly, and we were a little late because the new education policy for India was just introduced before we did our study. So we missed that opportunity to advocate very strongly for uh, media and digital literacy. But right now, what I see is that when we say digital literacy, I see only two areas getting addressed in India. One is uh, fact-checking and fake news. And the other is uh, functional digital literacy, you know, mm -hmm. but that like there is no comprehensive digital and media literacy education that is given in schools. So that is one thing we would really like to advocate for. 
Thank you, Manisha. I think we'll unpick this discussion at the end when we're talking about where, what are the areas where we need more impact across the different sites. But thank you so much to, to the three uh, panelists uh, so far. And I would like to now give the floor to uh, our next speakers, uh, Daniel and Mariam, who are going to unpack some of the, uh, the risks that we're talking about, specifically in relation to sexual exploitation, talking about, uh, shall I call it spin-off from Global Kitten Line, uh, the Disrupting Harm Project, uh, which uh, had a, a slightly different focus, but using some of the Global Kids Online. Uh, so a brief introduction to Daniel Cardefeld winter uh, leads the UNICEF Research Programme on Children and Digital Technologies at UNICEF Office of Research in Uchenti. And he works at the intersection of child rights and digital technologies and has several years of experience in designing, implementing and managing cross-national comparative evidence uh, generation projects uh, involving children and adults. And uh, in his role at UNICEF, uh, Daniel manages Global Kids Online and Disrupting Harm projects, generating evidence with children in more than 30 low middle income countries. Um, and Mariam Seed is a consultant at UNICEF Office of Research in Uchenti, uh, and she researches children's use of digital technologies and works on global kids online and disrupting harm projects as Daniel. Uh, Mariam's research explores media use patterns across the global south, primarily through survey research. And before joining Inocenti, Mariam worked at the Northwestern University in Qatar, surveying media use in the Middle East, uh, media industries in the region, and adolescents' health information-seeking behaviors. So, Daniel and Mariam, the, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Maria. And I'm just going to try to share my screen. So thank you so much for that introduction. It's great to be here. Great to uh, participate in the webinar, uh, hear from um, colleagues about their emerging findings from new projects. And um, today, uh, me and Marion will talk mostly about online sexual abuse. Um, we will talk a little bit about cyber hate, but I'll be upfront and say that really the part about cyber hate that we'll talk about is more to showcase um, the kind of things, well, how far we have come, let's say, um, through this comparative data collection on children's online experiences over the past seven years. Um, but the first part of our presentation, and the majority of it, will focus on the Disrupting Harm Project. Um, and the Disrupting Harm Project, it's, an, it's a really interesting project. It's, it was conceived and funded by the End Violence Fund through their Safe Online Initiative, and it's implemented by UNICEF together with ECPAT International and Interpol. Um, and really what Disrupting Harm does um, is that it tries to understand the scale of online child sexual exploitation and abuse. So I would say one of the more severe risks that children encounter online. Um, and this is what we use a spin-off of the Global Kids Online Survey to do. But it also goes um, kind of to the next level in a way because it also tries to understand through other research activities, how the different protection systems in a country are responding or not to this type of crime. So it, it paints a very comprehensive picture um, of the readiness of a country in a way to respond um, to online sexual abuse of children. Now, how do we define online sexual abuse of children? This is a big debate uh, globally that is going on, but for the sake of our study, um, we're basically interested in situations that somehow involve digital communication technologies at some point during the abuse. Um, and this is quite important because we're not only talking about abuse that takes place while a child is on the internet. We're also talking about abuse that is, for example, documented through cell phones um, or when um, images of abuse are shared with other children in schools, for example, things like that. Um, and so it's important for us to really 
bring home this message that even though we call it online sexual abuse, it can occur fully online through online grooming, for example, is a good example of that. Um, but also through a mix of online and in-person interactions between offenders and children. And we're really interested in the role of technology in facilitating violence. Now, I alluded to this already, but Disrupting Harm basically implements nine different research projects per country. It's a multi-country, multi-methods, multi-sectoral study. And you can see the different methods we use here. The household survey component, which is the one that my team was leading from here, as I said, it builds on the Global Kids Online questionnaire. So it continues to generate comparable data with Global Kids Online studies, EU Kids Online studies, the Latin America Kids Online studies. But it also adds a very specific focus on uh, experiences of online sexual abuse. Now, that's just one part um, of the puzzle. We also speak to governments to understand the legal policy landscapes and what they are doing um, to, to prevent and respond to this crime. We speak to frontline service workers who meet children who have experienced online sexual abuse to understand their capacity. Uh, we do the same thing with justice professionals who work in courts with cases of online abuse so that we can understand the justice system and how the justice system is equipped or not to handle this type of crime. Uh, of course, we speak to children themselves. We speak to survivors, um, survivors of online sexual abuse to understand in depth their experiences. And we also talk to children who have gone through court with cases of online sexual abuse to be able to understand their experiences and compare and contrast that with the experience of the professionals, the adults working in these systems. And often you find very interesting differences um, there. Uh, we look at non-law enforcement data um, as well. Uh, and we also do and this is part of Interpol's job, a law enforcement capacity assessment to understand what national law enforcement is equipped to do uh, to combat this crime. And we conduct a country threat assessment to also understand the threats to, um, to children in each country. And this is all underpinned by um, a desk review of existing research, as well as a legal analysis to understand the legislation in a particular country. So all of this is put together into one comprehensive national assessment uh, where this information is triangulated to paint as comprehensive of a picture as possible uh, of children's experiences and the capacities of the systems to respond. For me, working in such a comprehensive way has really been a game changer in terms of how I think about research, because you get so much interesting information, and by weaving it together, you can really provide very concrete recommendations that are actionable um, for every country uh, when they want to improve their prevention and response. Now, Disrupting Harm was conducted in the countries you see on the screen. It's 13 countries in Southeast Asia and Eastern and Southern Africa. Uh, this was the first round. We just finalized the last report launch. It's been a three-year long project. We're starting to work on another 11 countries now. Um, and that's going to cover the Middle East. It's going to cover countries in Latin America as well um, and the Western Balkans region. So the work is continuing and we're, we're going to try to do it better um, and more impactful this time. I will walk you through some key findings and I'll hand over to Mariam for most of those. Um, and we're going to talk first about children's experiences. And these are cross-national um, findings. So they are basically looking across the 13 countries where we worked. Um, so we found that between one to 20% of children in these countries had some, at least one experience of online child sexual exploitation and abuse in the past year alone. And these are very severe experiences um, that cannot be mistaken for um, 
perhaps more innocuous experience like seeing um, sexual images online. This is really actually, in most cases, crimes against children that have occurred. Um, the 1% to 20% represents uh, basically a high variation between countries. Most countries, I think, are around 9 to 20%. There are a few outliers. Um, but these are very, very high numbers, actually, given the severity of these crimes, which made us um, quite worried. I, I did not expect it to be this high. We should also remember that these are underreported figures, because that's always the case when you ask children questions um, about violence. Um, we found that over half of the children who had these experiences said that it last occurred on social media. Um, and Facebook was by far the most common platform where children were targeted in almost every country. Um, this is partly due to Facebook's popularity, but it also indicates that they um, need to do more um, to address these issues because they're such a popular platform for children. Concerningly, um, around a third of children didn't disclose their abuse to anyone. Um, and nearly half of those children who didn't disclose that it was because they didn't know where to go um, and they didn't know who to tell. Others were talking about feeling embarrassed, finding this too difficult to talk about. Um, and so there's a lot of work to be done to help children um, report these kinds of crimes, make them feel comfortable and safe and secure enough to do it. And on average, we saw that in these countries, only 3% of um, victims across these countries actually called a helpline. Um, only about 3% contacted the police to report these crimes. So we have a pretty serious issue in these countries when it comes to encouraging children to report these crimes. And if they don't report them, of course, it's um, harder to address them in a good way. Mariam, over to you for the rest of the findings. Thanks, Daniel, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's really great to be here for this exchange of, of knowledge. Um, so like Daniel mentioned, disrupting harm didn't just look at the nature and scope of the problem. Um, we also engaged with several key stakeholders um, that were already mentioned to look at how the existing um, national systems are responding to these forms of violence against children. So across the 13 countries, um, the points on the slide were some of the most consistent gaps and challenges um, that came out from the data. So the first was related to awareness. And we found that when um, child sexual abuse is committed online or is facilitated by um, digital technologies, it's almost seen as a new kind of abuse that requires um, a new kind of set of prevention and response systems. But actually what we found in our survey from talking to children is that very often the episodes of abuse that they uh, endure are, um, or what we consider oxea, actually occur through a mix of in-person and online interactions with offenders. The second point was related to collaboration. Um, so participants across sectors that we spoke to mentioned that there was weak coordination between government agencies um, that have a child protection mandate. Um, and this often leads to a duplication of efforts. And the third was a lack of resources, um, which may not come as a surprise. Um, so although governments did allocate a budget for child protection in general, um, this often was described as insufficient and had to be supplemented through um, fundraising, donor contributions, um, and support from civil society as well. 
And although we did find that child friendly policies do exist in many of the countries um, that were included in the disrupting harm study, they weren't always implemented consistently. So for example, they may be implemented really well in the capital cities, um, but not in rural areas of the country. And this, of course, directly impacts children. So, for example, when we spoke to children who um, were subjected to um, online child sexual exploitation and abuse, and then they tried to go through the formal justice systems, we found that in several countries, um, they actually ended up having to recount their, um, their experiences of abuse several times. Um, and this led to feelings of stress and anxiety, and of course, um, can be a major source of re-traumatization for a child. We also found that the language used in courts was sometimes um, too complicated and, and made it really difficult for children to uh, understand what was being said or what was being decided about their cases. So um, in terms of the legislation, uh, we included the legal analysis of the relevant legislation related to OXEA. Um, so what we found is that overall, the criminalization of um, child sexual abuse material, or CSAM for short, was quite, quite comprehensive in most countries. And when I say comprehensive, I mean that it aligns with internationally agreed upon uh, standards of CSAM. But one of the biggest gaps, actually, that we saw across most countries is that there was a lack of legislation that explicitly criminalized um, live streaming of sexual abuse. Um, and even in countries with um, strong legislative frameworks around OXEA, what we found is that there was sometimes a lack of regular monitoring um, of the implementation of these uh, laws. When it comes to law enforcement capacity, um, in general, one of the limitations that we found in actually conducting the research, which I think is a fine thing in and of itself, is that there was a lack of um, systematic recording of OXEA cases uh, that law enforcement units were, were handling. Um, and so this included things like double counting uh, cases and not having a clear categorization of crimes that involved a digital uh, component. So some of the key recommendations um, based on interviewing um, serving officers from these law enforcement units was really that there's a need for a specialized and well-trained uh, uh, officers, um, either in their own unit or embedded in other units um, that are knowledgeable on how to investigate crimes um, with a digital technology component. Um, and we also found that foreign cooperation uh, or cooperation with other foreign law enforcement units is incredibly important in, in combating crimes, especially online crimes um, that really have no border in a sense. So things like connecting to Interpol's uh, ICSA database, which is the International Child Sexual Exploitation Database, can better allow national uh, law enforcement units to collaborate with foreign law enforcement um, on ongoing OXEA cases and hopefully to resolve them sooner. So this is a big question we, we always get asked when we present these findings. You know, what is next? What are some of the policy changes um, that we need to solve these issues? How do we disrupt this harm to children? Um, and of course, I think one thing that should be noted is that this is a multi-stakeholder responsibility. Um, and in the Disrupting Harm reports, we do list a set of recommendations um, which are linked to the data and, and grounded in the evidence that we find, but each one is signposted to the relevant sector or sectors um, that should take this forward. So in the next few slides, I'm just going to present some of the overarching recommendations um, that were relevant across countries, but there are, of course, more tailored recommendations um, in the report itself. So the first is to invest, um, because realistically, 
um, none of these recommendations can be uh, implemented without sufficient resources. Um, and this was also clear from the interviews that we conducted across sectors. Um, there simply isn't enough knowledge or capacity to effectively um, implement laws, policies, and programs. So increasing the allocation of um, financial and human resources using both a mix of government and private sector resources um, is really a needed first step. Um, one of the other recommendations is integration. So as I mentioned, um, a lot of, of the participants who we spoke to in the research saw OXEA as this new type of abuse that was just emerging. Um, and as I said, our data does show that the majority of children who were subjected to abuse online were also subjected to contact sexual abuse. Um, and this, of course, suggests that there's no need to reinvent the wheel, um, and instead we can adapt existing child protection uh, and violence prevention strategies so that we can address these crimes that happen to have a digital technology element. Um, and the idea of this is really to allow children to benefit from services and knowledge that already exists. But I think one important caveat is that service providers do need to be well trained about the unique aspects of online uh, sexual exploitation and abuse that may require a slightly specialized response. So um, next we move on to streamlining. So seven out of the 13 uh, disrupting harm countries um, had actually established a national coordination mechanism uh, to address OXEA. Uh, and that brought together, you know, mandated government agencies, civil society organizations, and sometimes private industry partners. And these countries we found typically had stronger coordination between national stakeholders, um, and they did report fewer challenges around duplication of work and unclear mandates between government agencies. So establishing these kinds of national coordination mechanisms um, would allow for better assigning of responsibilities and tasks. It would allow for reducing duplication of efforts and increasing collaboration um, among agencies. But one thing also to note around streamlining is that the justice process also needs to be streamlined for children. Um, because as I mentioned, children were having to you know, recount their abuse multiple times during the investigation and prosecution process of cases. Um, and so this is where things like one-stop centers um, are a really good practice in that they provide children with a child-friendly setting uh, that eliminates the need for victims to recount their abuse multiple times. Um, and it also facilitates collaboration um, and coordination between support services. Um, and then there's the legislation, which of course is incredibly important. So, you know, as we saw in the previous slides, the national legislation uh, around OXEA was strong in some areas like child sexual abuse materials, but weak in others like live streaming of abuse. So what we do recommend and push for is adapting and implementing um, updated and comprehensive legislation on cyber related crimes, um, including OXEA. And this is to make sure that we secure and streamline prosecution of cases as much as possible. Um, and so specifically, as I said, some of the major gaps that we found were not just live streaming, but also um, technology facilitated crimes like online grooming of children. And then if we go to our last and final slide, um, this is really about knowledge and, and, and education. Um, so the first is um, training. And one of the things that I mentioned was how, you know, quickly ways of offending uh, tends to change when you when it's when it comes to using digital technologies. And so from our findings, we noted that there is a need to really upskill frontline social support workers, um, police officers, legal professionals, um, and others who are handling cases of um, 
child sexual exploitation and abuse where technology is involved um, and to do so regularly because the ways of ways of offending are are constantly changing and i think this is one of the really important steps that we need to take so that we can effectively integrate you know um, addressing oxea into the existing child protection systems and to provide children with better care and support um, and the second point of the slide is, is education. Um, one of the things that came across quite clearly in the data was that the topic of online sexual exploitation and abuse can be really sensitive to discuss, um, but not knowing about these risks of harm that exist around children is actually putting them at a disadvantage. So there's really a need to engage the public and increase awareness of violence against children uh, in general, but Oxea specifically, um, as well as making sure that children are aware of you know, their sexual reproductive health and rights, including things like bodily harm and consent. Um, and these messages we really stress should be developed in consultation with children and other key stakeholders. They should always be backed by evidence to make sure that they're effectively responding to a problem um, and that they have universal reach. So they're not just reaching children uh, from some sectors of society and not others. And finally, uh, we have leading with data. So there's a lot that we still don't know about um, online harms like Oxea at a global level. Um, but without this knowledge, we can't really effectively uh, protect against these harms. And I think I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, so we really emphasize the need for um, high quality independent research on children's experiences and children's voices, um, just to provide us with actionable insights that all, stakeho all stakeholders can uh, then implement. So that's it from our side. Um, we've put here a QR code in case you would like to take a look at some of our reports that are all published at this point. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So it's over from the Disrupting Harm presentation. And this, like I said before, this is really just to tie back also to the previous discussion around comparable evidence generation, which Disrupting Harm also contributes to. Um, I hope you can see what's on this slide, but basically what we've done, and this is the first time we try to do this, um, we put together comparable data from 36 countries uh, on two indicators, actually, that we have in the in the different surveys we run um, across the Disrupting Harm Survey, the EU Kids Online work, uh, the Global Kids Online work, the work of the Latin America Kids Online Network. Um, and we, we just analyzed it together to see what can we actually start to do now that we have for the past seven years worked on evidence generation in a comparable way. And so what you see here is basically children's exposure to hate messages, as well as their exposure to um, violent and gory images by a country. Um, and we also map this to country-level internet diffusion data, which is basically internet users per 100 population um, from the World Bank. Um, and so you can start doing things like this when you have this much comparable data. And we can see, for example, that um, just by eyeballing the data, a considerable proportion of children around the world are exposed to hate messages, are exposed to um, violent and gory images on a yearly basis. Um, we can see the differences between countries are quite substantial, uh, which could offer really good insights into potential good practice to aid countries at an earlier stage, perhaps um, of internet adoption. And what I think is quite interesting if you, if you look at these uh, graphs is that higher internet diffusion for the most part is associated with higher risk um, of encountering hate messages and violent images. Um, and it seems like countries, when they hit about a 50% internet diffusion rate, they see a rather steep rise um, in children's risk exposure. 
which really reinforces the need to develop strong child online protection policies and regulation as connectivity um, increases. Uh, but we also see that risks can be substantial even in countries where internet access still remains rather low. Um, and we can learn also that some countries with higher internet diffusion have managed to maintain relatively low exposure to hate messages, to violent content. Um, so we could investigate those countries further and see if there are things we can learn about good practice. So this is just a little snapshot that I wanted to show to tie it back to, to Sonia's introduction to the talk of the panel to show how far we've come really in the past seven years and the kind of comparable data that we can now start exploring um, through the work that we've all um, jointly done together. And, and with that, I think I'm handing back to you, Sonia. Thank you very much, um, Daniel and um, Mariam. And also thank you to uh, the previous panel and where Daniel ended up takes me back to one of the things we've often found in the research, which is broadly, um, as countries go online more, as children go online more, and they gain more um, access, which as, as we've heard from uh, speakers so far is, is, is sometimes difficult and certainly uh, an area of inequality. We see children gaining more um, digital skills and more of the opportunities that we haven't talked about so much here, but is, is important for that broader child rights focus. But that process also brings with it the risks. Um, and I think uh, we've heard a very sobering account of, of some of the risks that, that children around the world are encountering. So I want to thank you uh, for the questions that have been coming into the Q&A. And I'm now going to turn to those and direct some of them to our, our panelists. Um, I did want to just note that we have been um, focusing on some of the positives of impact and some of the ways in which the research has been uh, getting out there um, and being used by practitioners and policymakers. But of course, I think you've also heard along the way, this is a very effortful and a very challenging process. And it's not that we generate research and policymakers and practitioners say, thank you very much. Now we can make the world a better place. You know, there is a very um, uh, intensive and demanding uh, process by which I think everybody here has had to and does want to continue to work um, to be sure that the, um, the, the research does have the benefits that we hope. And that takes me to the first question that was asked by um, Isabella Sklani, uh, an LSE student. So thank you for your question, which is to really invite us um, to kind of follow through from the research to some of the impact and policy frameworks. But ultimately, we do want to know, don't we, that, that young people are safer and better off um, as a result. And I wonder, um, perhaps I can ask Alessandra and um, Patrick, as those who've been working perhaps longest with the data, do you see ways or what do you think are the ways in which we might be able to show that as a result of the evidence-based policy and practice, um, genuine benefits are reaching children? Alessandra, no, do you no. want to go first and just say, because you've done the study over some years, do you see children getting safer as a result of some of the evidence that informs policy? Or, in fact, do you feel that the, the, the problem is becoming more challenging, outpacing yeah. research, perhaps? I think that, uh, you know, measuring impact of policies is not an easy task, mm. as we all of us know. 
it is very difficult to measure the impact because you need a different type of approach, methodological approach, uh, control groups. And what we have been seeing uh, through this monitoring, I would say, is not measuring impact, but uh, rather than monitoring how kids are adopting or how they are reporting uh, uh, harms and risks and even opportunities. So what I see from uh, the Brazilian experience that policymakers and the policy debate in the country, protecting children is not the first priority. But what I what I see is that when you don't have data, problems are invisible. And if they are invisible, they don't have any priority. So at least what I can see uh, throughout these uh, uh, 10 years of uh, publishing uh, evidences on uh, child online protection is that we are bringing uh, or giving visibility to the key issues related to um, child online protection. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all know that uh, social media is being adopted in very early uh, age uh, Mm -hmm. in the childhood. Mm -hmm. And this poses a lot of problems because um, you were willing to connect to friends who think like you or who do things like um, you, you do or things you like. And this creates a lot of uh, problems because it um, hinders uh, the critical thinking for mm-hmm. children. So mm-hmm. in yeah. this particular issue, parental mediation is very, very key. Mm-hmm. And what we have been doing here uh, in CETIC and also at NIC uh, as a broad, more broad um, approach is to teachers training and to uh, raise awareness on uh the importance of safe use of internet. Mm-hmm. So we have key actors like policymakers that they want data, but not necessarily they are using evidence to develop uh, policies and children are not a uh, top priority, mm-hmm. but other key actors are teachers and parents. Mm-hmm. And in this regard, I think that we have been playing a very important role in raising awareness. Yes. So, uh, but uh, we are far from measuring impact of policies right, yeah. is uh, more monitoring the adoption and the development and the increase or decrease of some uh, variables. Thank you. So, thank you. Let me take that question also to, to Patrick, because Patrick, I think you've worked uh, with a number of organizations that have um, asked you to kind of establish, you know, what is the follow through the impact and perhaps research also the effectiveness of some of those policy interventions. Yeah, yeah, well, I think so. I mean, just first off to to echo again what Alexandra was saying is that it is just so difficult to measure policy and, and you, you do use different approaches that I don't really see Global Kids Online as sort of that's where the, the data informs the policy, but then, you know, it's the policy has to get translated to legislation and then into interventions and programs. And it's much easier once you have a specific program for educators, once you have a program or capacity building for frontline child protection workers um, or parenting interventions, whatever it might be, that address all of these these issues, then it becomes easier to say, well, you track the route between the evidence generated from Global Kids Online to the change in policy or concurrently or as a result of the design of specific interventions and programming priorities. And then you look at that impact of those particular interventions. Um, 
But what I think you can always do, and I think what Global Kids Online is, I mean, it's been mentioned by, I think, all the speakers, is by making sure that children's voices remain central to that. And I think what you can do is you can continually track what children are saying about their experiences and how those change. Um, you can get an idea of how the environment around them is changing. So it's not a measurable, this is how policy has impacted, um, you know, in this way but you tracking that change in different ways, if that makes sense. Yes, and I think that kind of tracking and that making visible children's experience in, in, in a, a range of ways has been very, very important. But clearly we work with lots of others who have evaluation frameworks and impact frameworks and a theory of change and, and so forth. Another question um, now from uh, Florencia Egina, which I think raises lots of interesting questions, um, perhaps for Manisha and also our colleagues from UNICEF, is about that balance. In a way, who are we talking to? Um, how much do we, um, is the evidence for national governments, um, perhaps Manisha for Gujarat in particular, or for India as a country, or, or and Daniel and Mariam, you've talked very much about working with international organizations. So I think that question of whether this agenda is being taken forward more through international cooperation or more through national um, factors. And Mariam, do you have thoughts about how, how the research you're doing would be most effectively taken up and um, built into change? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of both. I think you do have to have a national focus because a lot of the data that we find is is nationally relevant um, and so in a lot of cases it's about changing you know x piece of legislation and that's something that needs to take place at the national level but at the same time there are international standards that need to be agreed upon because i think what we're finding here is that it's it is a global problem um, and it's it's not simply the case that a child in in one country can only be abused by offenders in in that country right they're they're almost they've almost become accessible um to offenders globally and so there needs to be that that level of coordination and that level of agreement upon for example what is the uh, appropriate you know legislative framework that is needed um do we need to make sure that live streaming is included in all our, in all our legislation um are there gaps in terms of how we identify online grooming um, I think these are all things that need to be agreed upon on a global scale. Mm-hmm. But there is, of course, also things that need to be implemented at a national level. Mm. Thank you. And um, actually, there's a question now from um, Anika Singh, uh, specifically based in India, which I might take to uh, Manisha, where uh, Anika's point uh, is um, there is a surge now in, in cases of child online sex- uh, online abuse um, because the policy is not yet developed sufficiently is the argument. Um, So do you see it as the researchers task to kind of escalate attention to the problem because you have access to the findings or is it a matter of partnerships with key national organizations? Yeah, so I think we'll have to start working with the key national organizations, Mm. but I would rather start, you know, locally and then move up. I can definitely see that, for example, the findings we have, even though they are from Gujarat, they can be very well applied to India as a whole. Yeah. So I think definitely working with key national stakeholders would be very important here. Thanks. And I think it is already like 
an agenda, you know, it is on people's minds. So it's not something that because we have these findings, you know, we are pushing for something that people at large are not concerned about. Mm. So from that respect, I don't see that that's going to really cause that much of attention, you know, if we can pitch it in the right way. Um, Daniel, there's there's a few questions here about the research that you um, and Mariam reported, and perhaps I can direct those to you. Um, so from uh, Menting Wang, uh, a question about disrupting harm, specifically about how you could um, research the relation between online child sexual exploitation and abuse and, as it were, offline. How, how do, you, do you think about that? And perhaps that will link with the question by Patricia Cabello on um, ethical issues that arise, because clearly this is, is, is enormously challenging research to, to conduct, and perhaps there are limits of what you can discover that you might want to comment on. Thank you, Sonia. Yeah, the, I've spent pretty much most of my time the past three years trying to think about the boundary between online child sexual exploitation and abuse and child sexual exploitation and abuse. I think for me, what is most important and what we don't fully know yet is when and how technology is used to facilitate cases of sexual abuse against children. So what's the role of technology within that? And that is enormously hard to understand because technology can be used in many different ways by many different people to perpetrate abuse in many different ways. Um, you can think of, for example, someone taking uh, private pictures of someone that that person doesn't want to share and sharing it with them. You could, you could do that within, for example, the context of a consensual relationship, and then you forward share them. You've used technology to commit sexual violence in that case. But then you also have cases where random uh, people will approach children online with the intent of grooming them. And here, technology or the platform that they're on becomes, in a way, the space where the abuse occurs. It's no longer a tool, as in the first example. In the first example, it is a tool. In the second example, it is a space. Um, and so I just really, I think we need to understand better when, when and how technology is used to enable sexual abuse of children. How to do that? It, it's extremely difficult. We've made some headway in disrupting harm. But this for me is one of the main questions that we're going to try to resolve in the next iteration of the project. I, I really don't have all of the answers here. Um, to Patrizio's question, so what ethical issues emerge when we receive information about children being abused online when that had, hadn't been reported before? It depends. Um, well, so you would be talking about the survey because when we learn about it from survivors or children who go through the justice system, of course, those cases have been reported. This is difficult because we anonymize all of the responses um, for good reason, because we don't want uh, people to know which children said what. Um, the very unsatisfying outcome of that is that we can't do anything uh, because we cannot go back and say, OK, these children were abused. We need to help them with, with support and services. Mm -hmm. um, what we do do um, as part of our general safeguarding process is that we leave um, we leave behind materials to all children in the whole study, as well as their parents, um, information and resources on where to go to seek help for these kinds of issues, um, framed very carefully um, as to not make anyone nervous or worried or thinking that something wrong has happened. Um, but that is the best we can do within the context of a survey implementation. Might be better ways out there that we need to look into, but that's how we, um, how we did it. Uh, and of course, if things come up, if things are disclosed during the interview process, during the survey, then of course we have a 
safeguarding protocol that we follow to, to make sure that those children get um, get help. But that's a bit of a different situation. Thank you. There's a, a fair number of questions coming in, and I don't know if we will um, manage them all because we're in the last um, eight minutes of our time. I wonder if some one of you might like to address the question by um, Anna Jika um, on the engagement with technology platforms themselves and how much they you see them engaging with the research that is being done within Global Kids Online, Disrupting Harm. Um, or is this really primarily a conversation that we as researchers have with governments and international organisations? Patrick, you're shaking your head. So I wonder um, if you wanted to make a comment on this. Because, I mean, there is a very um, ongoing conversation about the, the both the yep. responsibility of technology platforms, but also the research they do, which is not always um, in the public yep. domain and how that relates to the research we do do in the public. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> I'm smiling just because I think in itself, it's the whole nother series of webinars on it. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I think that when we're conducting research like this, mm-hmm. the technology companies within that particular country need to be part of these conversations. Um, and I think that they generally are accepted to being part of the, the conversations. And I think when the research comes out, in my experience, they welcome the suggestions and recommendations on investing in awareness, investing in working with teachers and schools and all of these, because it provides them with an opportunity to say, yes, we'll help you with that. That's my cynical mm. take on it. But I think we mm. see that quite a lot. Mm. You know, so there's very much they recognize that, that yes, this is an issue. They do not reject the research. They do not reject the data. But it also allows them to kind of, you know, take a particular stance without fundamentally addressing the other side of it, which is what's happening on their platforms and, you know, the the broader issues around design, et cetera, that everybody here, you know, has, has spoken and advocated for. So the short answer is yes, there needs to be that engagement with industry and often they are receptive to it and they want to come to the party. Mm. Um, at times they even want to fund some of this research, but there are challenges around that, um, you know, should they shouldn't they um but i think that is an ongoing space that we have to navigate in different ways but again this data can always be new, be used to inform that discussion and should be used to inform that discussion you know i think when data that for example the disrupting harms data comes out that just puts it out there so fundamentally and other data where we can say well look this these are the platforms where this is happening and we have the evidence to support it it's hugely powerful thank you um, we are in our last minutes. I'm going to pick one last question and uh, direct it to my um, colleague, Maria Stoliver. So this question is from uh, Magdalena Claro um, from our uh, Chilean um, Global Kids Online team. And she asked a question that I know Maria would have been thinking about because we recently reviewed all the different ways in which research questions are being asked in this domain um, to identify where there are gaps. And uh, Magdalena asks um, whether there are new questions that we should be including after the pandemic? Yes, thank you, Magdalena. That's a a great question. And I do think that that we've learned so much about the inequalities and the effects uh, on children during the pandemic in ways that are different from how we were thinking about the internet use before. So we do need to to go back and revise. Um, I can't really point to the exact questions that we need to ask, but there's definitely an area where I would like us to know a little bit more. And this is how children uh, build resilience. This is something that we need to answer urgently. It's not an easy 
question or area uh, to answer. That's why I think we haven't been doing this more effectively. Uh, but we need to be able to distinguish between online risks uh, and harm from this risk and to find out what makes a difference and what protects children, whether it's education, uh, whether it's uh, digital skills, whether it's parental mediation, uh, whether it's more regulation on platforms. It's probably all of the above. But I think we need to have a clear understanding of children at risk, their vulnerabilities and what can protect different children. And this is something that uh, a little bit more and use the, the data that we've been collecting over the years to do more analysis of these pathways to uh, harm and out of out of harm as well. That will be Sonia, my answer. Thank you. Thank you very much. We should probably uh, draw it to a close, though I, I'm dying to discuss the further questions that, that are coming in. Um, and I love that you know, we do get different kinds of answers from you speaking for different parts of the world and with different uh, perspectives in terms of the, more the data gathering or more the kind of the impact work, more the comparisons across countries or the deep dive um, within uh, these countries. And uh, I'm only sorry that today we couldn't bring even more members of the Global Kids Online um, network into this into this discussion because there are always new insights as we talk um, and as we we hear new data and new new comparisons and new challenges arise, as Maria said in relation to the um, the pandemic. So I think this is the moment where I uh, should now say uh, thank you so much to all my uh, colleagues and panellists. Um, I give a, a, a silent clap, as it were. Thank you very much to those of you who've been um, asking questions and to everyone who is, who is um, listening. Uh, we uh, will put the recording uh, onto the Global Kids Online website um, and we will also, uh, somebody asked about sharing the slides, we will um, absolutely uh, share the slides uh, from today as well. Uh, and we invite you to sign up to Global Kids Online um, on the website to hear further um, news of the research. So thank you to everyone and goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.